Welcome everyone to our weekly family home evening gospel discussion. Yeah, no major announcements this week. Thanks to everyone that's that's tuning in and hopefully everyone can get something out of this. I know Carl's got some good points to discuss this week as always. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so with that, I'll turn the time over to Carl. Well, thank you, sir. Tonight, we're going to do things just a tad differently than normal. I thought we'd start off with something new that I'm introducing, a new section this week called Teaching Moments. And I think this is more reflective of the emails I keep getting from the Sunday school. They keep telling me how I should be a better instructor. And so I've been keeping my eyeballs open for things that I can do to help um, parents and anybody else who's an instructor. So in that way, then we're furthering the mandate of Sunday school. What I found this week was this gentleman, I listened to a podcast by Dr. Robert L. Millett. He's an emeritus professor from BYU. In fact, he was the Dean of Religious Studies for quite a while. And he tells a story about his dad. Now his dad was not very well educated when it comes to the things of the world. I mean, he was very successful. He ran a successful business, et cetera, but he really only had a high school education. Of course, this was a few years ago. He was never really instructed on how to be a teacher or how to properly run a classroom. However, Brother Miller talks about one day dropping in on, on his dad's class, and his dad was teaching the old Gospel Essentials class. Do you remember that? The Gospel Essentials was for brand new members of the church. And he posed a question. He said this, who restored the Aaronic priesthood? And somebody at the back of the class shot their hand up and said, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That was Moroni. Brother Millen was thinking, I don't know how my dad's going to handle this. He's never really been instructed on what to do in a classroom. But he had this unique ability to be able to read people and understand people. And so what he said was, oh, I'm so glad that you mentioned him. And then he went off for five minutes and talked about how great a man he was, how great a prophet he was. And then after going on for about five minutes, he came back and said, oh, yeah, where were we? Oh, yeah, who, who restored the Aaronic priesthood? Somebody else put their hand up and said, John the Baptist. And I just thought that was a very interesting thing for him to do intuitively as a teacher. Because I think a lot of times people in our class don't speak up, don't say anything for fear of giving the wrong answer for fear of saying something that they perceive as being dumb. I completely agree with that. I think that, that I know personally, I suffer from that, like you, what, whether or not you would call it anxiety, but the fear of, is my response right? Is it, you know, is it of value? Is it going to help contribute to the discussion? Or maybe I'm just going to sound like a, like, I don't know what I'm talking about. And I know that, um, you know, I've seen that, in my classes where sometimes someone will, you know, give an off leading risk, like a, just an odd response maybe. And I know for myself, sometimes it's hard to be genuine about it. And, you know, I really appreciate that story. I, thought, I think the way that he handled that was really quite wise and uh, well put. Um, so I definitely would like to, to try to or add that to my, some of my strategies, I guess, because yeah, I agree. It can be difficult from a teacher's perspective and also, from a student, are we in an environment that is inviting? Um, depends, really. Yeah, I totally agree too. I think 
now that I think about this, maybe maybe the, the strategy is not to ask questions that can have a right or wrong answer, but instead ask a question kind of like, so how do you feel about the fact the Aaronic Priesthood was restored or, or how has it blessed your life or something like, you know, where there's no wrong answer. Yeah. yeah. I, I'll tell you another story because I was talking to my mom the other day. She said, I'm really enjoying your videos. She was my first subscriber. What can I say? <laughs> and then, but she said, do you mind if I offer you a suggestion? And I thought, okay. And she said, I've noticed in your discussions with people that you don't really thank them for their responses. And I thought about that. And I thought, well, maybe that's true. Or maybe that's part of my editing process. Or I'm not exactly sure. So it's got me thinking about other people. You know, when we're teaching classes, are we grateful for people putting up? I think it's a hard thing for some people to answer a question in class. I think it's really a, a, a difficult thing for them to do. And so we need to be more cognizant of that, more aware, more grateful for participation. Okay, the next thing, favorite scripture story of the week. So scripture that I, is a doctoral master scripture. So I've been working on the seminary class. So uh, 107, 8. It's, uh, well, it describes that the, the Melchizedek priesthood um, basically has holds the rights of presidency, has power and authority over all offices in the church. What I think is interesting, in all ages of the world, and of course, it's uh, to administer in the spiritual things. Of course, that's, that's opposite to the Aaronic priesthood, which uh, is the lesser priesthood, and it's administers to the more temporal things. Awesome scripture. Yeah, very nicely. I'm going to go into that a little bit more. So I'm going to reserve my com my additional comments for later. Okay. The story that I thought about, remember we were talking about in 106, Warren Cowdery and his desire for there to be sent to his area. He was living in freedom. We talked about this on Sunday. Somebody needed to be called as the presiding person in the area to give more order to the church. And in my investigation, I realized that when he was called, the person in charge of the area, it wasn't just his branch, which had quite a lot of people. A branch of 80 people was quite large for that, but there were 10 or 12 other units in the area. So he was more than just a, a branch president. Uh, let's call him a district president, like a state president, but a smaller area. And so remember I said, be careful what you ask for. Well, he ends up being called as the presiding high priest. And then when I was doing some uh, further in investigation in Susan Easton Black's uh, book, Who's Who in the Doctrine and Covenants, we find that as he became the senior high priest in the area, it kind of went to his head a little bit. And in 1835, he wrote a letter to the, uh, the 12. It wasn't very nice. And so they kind of brought him up on charges. And so when he went to Kirkland, the prophet met with him and Warren admitted that he was wrong and that he was willing to publish that they, the 12, were not at fault. And so his public apology was accepted. And then we read this scripture. Now, all that preamble was to get us to the scripture. And again, verily I say to you, there was joy in heaven when my servant Warren bowed to my scepter and separated himself from the crafts of men. Therefore, blessed is my servant Warren, for I have mercy on him, notwithstanding the vanity of his heart. Now you understand why the Lord said he was vain. I will lift him up inasmuch as he will humble himself before me. 
Well, just a thought. I don't think it would cause concern, but uh, but if uh, if the Lord will treat Warren this way, I think He'll treat all of us this way if we repent as well. That's very interesting that you should say that because here is a talk from 1982, the University of Utah, by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. If you're on that path and pressing forward and you die, you'll never get off the path. There's no such thing as falling off the straight and narrow path in the life to come. And the reason is that this life is the time that is given to men to prepare for eternity. Now is the time and the day of your salvation. So if you're working zealously in this life, though you haven't fully overcome the world and you haven't done all you hoped you might do, you're still going to be saved. You don't have to do what Jacob said, go beyond the mark. You don't have to live a life that's truer than true. You don't have to have an excessive zeal, becomes fanatical and becomes unbalancing. What you have to do is stay in the mainstream of the church and live as upright and decent people in the church, keeping the commandments, paying your tithing, serving in the organizations of the church, loving the church, or loving the Lord, staying on the straight and narrow path. If you're on that path when death comes, because this is the time and day appointed, this is the probationary estate, you'll never fall off from it. And for all practical purposes, your calling and election is made sure. As long as you're headed in the right direction, the Lord loves us and he wants us to succeed. He wants us to return to live with him and that we don't need to be obsessed with making our calling and election sure of having an interview with Jesus Christ and seeing him face to face on the earth today. That process can take a while and that's okay. It's also good to know that it's not going to happen the day after we die. Either. Yeah, but it's okay. We have all of eternity as long as we're moving in the right direction, right? I think all too often, many of us think, you know, we're like second class members of the church. We're not going to make it. We'll make it to the, you know, the middle kingdom. We're not going to be good enough, but the Lord loves us. We're his children. He wants us to make it. And so he's organized things to help us to do it. Now, before I get too far down that road, I want to go back to this scripture and point out a couple of other things. What do you think it means that he separated himself from the crafts of men? Like when you read in the Book of Mormon, they often talk about something called priest crafts. And the Lord's not very big on that for obvious reasons. But what are the crafts of men? What other crafts are there besides priestcraft? Well, personally, I think professional major sports is a huge craft of men. NFL craft. That that whole industry that supports it. I think anything that we put all of our time, energy, and talents and money into can become a craft, whether that's work. You 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 could be a banker craft. If we go overboard into anything that's not bringing forth the glory of God, then that could be a craft of men. And so he's very pleased. He's saying there's joy in heaven because Warren has separated himself from the things of the world. And then he says something very interesting. He says, Warren has bowed to my scepter. Now, when I first read that, I think that's why I put this little picture in the corner there. I thought of a king with a scepter, you know, saying I'm the boss. 
But I, I don't think that that's what God is trying to tell us. He's saying everything that we have really in the world today is not ours. It's all the Lord's. He created the world. He created us. Everything that we have has really been given to us and we have a stewardship over it, except for one thing. What is that one thing? Our time. But that's an interesting answer because I thought about that. Well, agency is tied to the time. Yeah, because that's tied to time. It's how you use your time. Okay. Because he allows us to choose. In fact, we fought a war over it already, right? He allows us to choose. And if he ever takes that from us, our ability to choose, our agency, then he ceases to be God. So that's the one thing he cannot take. And it's the one thing that we can willingly give. Where I was going with the scepter (laughs) thing is that God is a benevolent God. He's not a dictator. He's not going to club you over the head with the scepter. He wants us to submit to his will. He wants us willingly give up what we want to do in favor of what he thinks we should do. I love how it's worded there. He, he wants us to separate ourselves from the crafts of men. We need to separate ourselves so that we can do his work. And, and if we do that, if we, if we give up voluntarily what we want in favor of what he wants, okay. then he turns around and he gives us the scepter. And he says, okay, now you qualified to be the same as I am. I'm willing to share everything that I have with you. I just had a paradigm shift from this particular scripture and listening to a couple of podcasts this week. Can I just ask a quick question about that? Um, no. I'm thinking about that because yeah, go you ahead. mentioned like the crafts of men. Um, I feel like to, I'm not sure exactly what the context was um, for Warren whether or not he separated himself from, from like his work life, if that would count, I understand it's, you know, it's important to separate ourselves from the crafts of men, but do we 100% separate ourselves? Um, Cause I, I worry that that could like exclude us to some point or like um, alienate. Does, does that kind of make sense? I don't, I know. My yeah. I don't, I don't really think clear. he's saying we, we have to give up work totally and, you know, and live in yeah, poverty. Yeah. No, that's, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that it, there are some parts, some things that can overwhelm you in your life, that take mm. over your life completely. Or you choose to let it do that. Yeah. Or you fo- choose to focus on it. Uh, like playing golf every day. Well, I mean, that's, that's the blessing of the Sabbath, right? It's also the blessing of going to the temple. Because, you know, that we do separate ourselves from the world. I mean, we do need to make a living. We do need to pay the bills and support our families and do all those, you know, things we need to do. But, but on the Sabbath, or, or, you know, or if we have to work on Sunday, at least another time, we need to try to separate ourselves. That's what I believe. And because, it, and that's, there's a great blessing to, to separating ourselves from that. It's, it's also allowing us then to not focus on work for work itself, whatever our occupation is, but mm-hmm. to, to focus on what we really need to be focusing on, that is our families and, and exactly. providing for families. So that's the purpose of our employment is to provide for our family. It's like, you know, do you work to live or live to work? It's that whole adage kind of thing. That's kind of what I think. Like how many people on their deathbed said, gee, I wish I would have spent more time in the office. Yeah, exactly. going back to your comment about warren warren was a very successful businessman he had a successful farm and he ran a pharmacy and he was like a big deal in the community yeah i think i was thinking about a little too literally like what came to mind was you know growing up having some friends that 
that refused like mem members of the church that like didn't want to make friends with people that weren't members oh no no uh you know to completely separate but i think that it may in this context i'm sure it, it means more like from a mental or you know spiritual perspective more so like we can be on a different we exactly, still have to yeah. live in the world we just mm -hmm. not have to partake of the exactly things exactly yeah, yeah yeah okay the next thing i want to talk about is the melchizedek priesthood why do we call it that so what anciently what did they call the, the melchizedek priesthood it's called the holy priesthood after the order of the son of god and so why did they change it to melchizedek and who is melchizedek well, that's in verse four. So out of respect and reverence to the name of the Supreme Being, to avoid the too frequent repetition of his name. So uh, they, and this is interesting, they, the church in ancient days. So they did this long time ago, not like this is way before the Savior. This is not came. Joseph Smith. It's not Joseph Smith. He didn't do it. And so because, so they did that, they called the priesthood after Melchizedek. He lived actually in the time of Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to him. There you go. In Doctrine and Covenants 107.3, we find out the Holy Priesthood after the order of the Son of God is renamed uh, to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word. It's uh, two words, Melech, which means king, and Zedek, which means righteous. And the I in between makes it possessive. So it literally means my righteous king. And, and that is really foreshadowing Christ and prototyping uh, Melchizedek is this prototype for this perfect being, that Christ that's going to come. And so you're right. In Genesis 14, it talks about Abraham paying tithes and receiving a blessing from Melchizedek. And then nothing for a thousand years. Nothing. Then in Psalms 110, David sings this psalm that talks about thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because this was a song that was, was sung at the inauguration of kings and kings slash priests. So the, the kings were also priests. And we don't see that very much in the Old Testament because it's been edited out. But we see it a lot in the Book of Mormon, where there's the high priest and the king is the same guy, right? Another thousand years goes by. We don't hear about Melchizedek. And then in Hebrews, all of a sudden, Paul is talking about Melchizedek. And he's trying to justify the fact that Christ has more authority than the people in the temple because Christ has the Melchizedek priesthood and the people in the temple have the Aaronic priesthood. You have to really go on this hunt to find stuff about Melchizedek. But the most interesting thing is in Alma 13. And I have to admit to you that when I've read Alma 13 before, I kind of glossed over. I didn't really dive into it deep, but this week I dove into it a little deeper than usual. You remember Alma going to preach to the people of Ammonihah. He refers to Melchizedek. And now, my brethren, I would that you should humble yourself before God and bring forth fruit meat for repentance that you may also enter into that rest. Why is he preaching repentance to Ammonihah, to the city? They were wicked. They're extremely wicked. Yeah. Yea, humble yourself even as the people in the days of Melchizedek, who was also a high priest after this same order, which I have spoken, and who took upon him the high priesthood forever. And it was this same Melchizedek to whom Abraham paid tithes. Yea, even our father Abraham paid tithes of one-tenth part of all he possessed. Now, these ordinances were given after this manner, that thereby the people might look forward on the Son of God, it being a type of his order, 
or it being his order, and this that they might look forward to him for remission of their sins, that they might enter into the rest of the Lord. So why is he talking about Jesus Christ and a remission of their sins to the people of Ammonihah? He goes on for the whole chapter on high priests and where they came from and why they're here and Jesus Christ. Why is he doing that? Well, he's trying to invite, he's trying to invite him to come to Christ, come unto Christ and repent. Yeah, it was very interesting. In one of the podcasts that I uh, was listening to on Melchizedek, they talked about anciently, there was this story about Melchizedek, that he was extremely gifted in talking and preaching and in teaching the people. He was so gifted in teaching that people changed their lives. So here he is, a king, a high priest, and an extraordinary teacher who helped people change their lives. And what Alma's doing here is, is telling the people of Ammoniah, look, Melchizedek had one of the worst, most wicked cities in the world, and he turned it around because the people were willing to listen to him. So it goes on further to say, now this Melchizedek was a king over the land of Salem, which of course becomes Jerusalem, right? And his people had waxed strong in iniquity and abomination. Yeah, they had all gone astray. They were full of all manner of wickedness. In fact, one of the texts that I was reading talked about the early Jerusalem being like Sodom and Gomorrah, that kind of wicked, like extremely wicked. But Melchizedek, having exercised mighty faith and received the office of the high priesthood, according to the holy order of God, did preach repentance unto his people. And behold, they did repent. And Melchizedek did establish peace in the land in his days. Therefore, he was called the Prince of Peace, for he was the king of Salem, and he did reign under his father. Now, there were many before, and also there were many afterwards, but none were greater. Therefore, of him they have more particular made mention. Melchizedek was this very, very righteous priestly king who turned around an entire wicked city. And isn't that really what the priesthood is for? The Lord oftentimes, particularly in the Book of Mormon, he doesn't give you the how. He just gives you the example. He doesn't tell you how to repent, but he gives you examples of people who repented. And I think the Lord does this a lot. And when, when we name something like the Melchizedek priesthood, you have to question why did they call it the Melchizedek priesthood? Well, they called it because Melchizedek was an awesome example of what a priesthood holder should be. Now, if you look at the name Aaronic priesthood, that could be another conversation we could have. The reason they call it the Aaronic priesthood was because of Aaron and who he was, or the Levitical priesthood because of Levi and who he was and what he was like. And so we have to be a little bit more particular about the words that we use and the words that we read when we're talking about the scriptures. The function of the Melchizedek priesthood is to, is to help elevate people. Go I was going to say, but we need to be really careful, not misunderstand that this priesthood, it didn't originate with them or really? it's not their priesthood. It's just named kind of in honor of, of them being good oh, examples of yeah. it. So it's not after the order of Melchizedek no. or, or Aaron or Levi. Yeah. This, that's after the order of the son of God. That is you know, that's an amazing that. point that you just did. And yeah. let's take that one step further. Let's talk about the Abrahamic covenant. It's the same thing. Abraham was a very, very, very good example of how to keep your covenants. You know, it could be, we could call it the Adamic covenant, the Noah covenant, 
It was the same covenant all through. It wasn't just didn't start with Abraham, started with Adam. But we call it the Abrahamic covenant for the same reason that we call it the Melchizedek priesthood, because they were excellent examples of that particular function. But excellent point, Ron. I'm glad that you brought that up. Just another point, too, just that, I mean, we often talk about the, the, the priesthood is the authority and the power of God, right? We talk about that. But then we don't often talk about power and authority to do what? And I love this because this is what it is. It's to turn around a wicked city it's and, and bring them to Christ. I mean, this is what the priesthood power is for. So Those now I want to talk for a moment about 70s. Can I just make a quick oh. comment here, Carl? One thing that I find really interesting, and I know, I know that we've kind of talked a little bit about this, but um, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about the importance of the name of our church. And I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about this continuing restoration of the church and this ability for the church to make these subtle changes, mm-hmm. not in doctrine, but in procedure of how things are done. And so I want to talk about the 70s for a minute. And in order to talk about the 70s as a background, we need to talk about Lyman Sherman, who's in section 108. You remember the guy that knocked on Joseph Smith's door on Christmas Day and said, I'm here because the Lord told me to come. And then he gives him this blessing, right? But I want to give you a little background on Lyman Royal Sherman. When he came to Kirkland, he was set apart as one of the presidents of the 70s. But his service as a president of the 70s, remember there are seven presidents, was very short-lived because once Joseph Smith found out that he had been ordained a high priest, he said, oh, oh, that's going to be a problem. And so he was released. I'll just keep that in the back of your mind for a minute. And then a short time later, the uh, Council of the Twelve Apostles met together and they decided that as a replacement for one of the apostles, Brother Sherman would be called as a new apostle. But before they could ordain him to the apostleship, he passed away from a very uh, quick disease that happened when he was in, in Kirkland. Do you remember when there were 70s in, at the ward level? Yep. And the 70s at the ward level were like ward missionaries. They were like local missionaries, but not full time. And then all of a sudden that changed. In my particular case, I was then ordained a high priest instead. I thought about it years, decades ago when it happened to me, but I only just recently found out why. I want to uh, read to you this section 107, and it talks about the presidency of the high priesthood. That's the first presidency, the right to officiate, which was uh, a scripture, I think, just past what Rod talked about earlier. And then talked about high priests after the order of the Melchizedek priesthood have the right to officiate in their own standing Uh, under the direction of the presidency and ministering spiritual things. And also high priests can function in the office of an elder, a priest, a teacher, deacon, or member. What's conspicuously missing here? The 70s. The 70s not there. Why? Okay. So I went further and apparently back in the 1970s and the eighties, the members of the quorum of the 12 and the first presidency were concerned that the the 12 apostles were way overworked. And so you remember that they had assistant to the quorum of the 12. Do you remember that? There were assistants. And then all of a sudden they got released. And I want to tell you why. The brethren assigned Boyd K. Packer to investigate this problem of being overworked and then to create a brief for them to discuss it. 
And so this is from the book, A Watchman on the Tower, which is a, a biography of Boyd K. Packer written by Lucille Tate. Elder Packer tells of the impact upon him. It suddenly occurred to me that that was a verse on the 70 that should be added to the others. This is the one we just read, Doctrine and Covenants 107, verse 10. The reason it had never been considered was that it did not mention the 70. And the significance of it was that it did not mention the 70. I took it to Bruce McConkie first and read it to him in that context. It was the first time that he had ever seen it in that light because it very declaratively said that a high priest could not officiate in the office of a 70. And so then they restructured everything, whereas before they were kind of struggling with trying to keep abreast of everything. And now they're able to do it in a much easier fashion. It, it functions so much better. But the Lord allows us to grow into what we're doing. But this scripture was there for more than 150 years, but nobody read it, or maybe the circumstances were not ripe for them to read it in the context that they understood it. And so we have this continually ongoing restoration of the gospel of the church of Jesus Christ, how the Lord wants us to function. Everyone is accountable. And I mean, everyone. So in section 107 in verse 81, there is not any person belonging to the church who is exempt from the council of the church. Does that mean the prophet can be dragged before the council of the 12? Has it ever happened? There's certainly been apostles that have been had to be answered to the Council of the Twelve, but actually Joseph Smith got brought before the Council of the Twelve two times. Oh, okay. And he said he was pleased to do it. I don't know if he was just testing the system, but he was exonerated both times. I just thought that was very interesting. But you're right; there have been a number of apostles that have been brought before the Council of the Twelve for things that they did. These councils of members, recently, anybody know recently? The last apostle to be disciplined before the Council of the Twelve was in 1943. However, there have been a couple of 70s, one specifically in 1989 and then one in 2017. So no one is exempt. Everybody has to be responsible for the choices that they make. And based on what I've just told you, no one is free from the temptation of sin. doesn't matter how high you go in the church. It is possible to sin and then repent and be restored. And that's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all make mistakes. We all can come back. Lectures on faith. Now, we glossed over this on my Sunday report that I did, but I thought we'd come back and just uh, look at it a little deeper. If you remember... I referred you to this particular website, lecturesonfaith.com, where you can actually read the lectures of faith. We talked about the history of the Book of Commandments that was then changed into the Doctrine and Covenants. And then in the 1921 edition, the Scripture Committee actually removes these 75 pages that include the lectures on faith and that they indicate that they were valuable, but not direct revelation from God, therefore not in the same league. They're not canon. They're not part of the standard works anymore. So this was kind of a, a, a different thing. So I went a little further and did some further investigation. I do remember reading the lectures on faith decades ago. And so I kind of went back and brushed up my, uh, my knowledge on it. And, it. and it really talks about faith and the importance of faith. I know that a lot of people sometimes say, oh yeah, we always talk about faith, repentance, baptism, the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm tired of that. I need something new, 
something more challenging. But you, I can honestly tell you that you could spend years studying faith, years, and maybe not completely understand it. Joseph Smith said, and this is probably the most famous quote from the lectures on faith, that a religion that doesn't require the sacrifice of all things build in you the faith that you need in order to make it back. This lectures on faith talks about the necessity of knowing who God is, his attributes, his character, the way that faith allows us to generate what's necessary for us to return to live with Heavenly Father. Something I thought I would just point out to people and say that if you've never studied it, it might be something you might want to go and study. Elsa's got a comment in the chat room. I did not see. Can you read it for me? I can do it. It says, oh. faith is the first big principle that has power, dominion, and authority over all things. I learned that by heart from Lectures of Faith. I love that definition. It is an, thank you for sharing that with us. That is an awesome quote. And again, I would just recommend that highly to anybody who's never read it. Uh, there's a website, you can go and read it and uh, spend just a lot of time working through what faith is. I want to talk about scaffolding. President Harold B. Lee once said the church is the scaffold with which we build eternal families. Elder L. Tom Perry observed, there are two principal reasons why I appreciate President Lee's metaphor for the church as scaffolding for our eternal families. First, it helps me understand what the church is. And second, and equally important, I understand what the church is not. What do you think he means? The church is to support our families, to help them to become internal families, not the other way around. And we, we talk about families being the basic unit of the church as a basic unit of the church, but it's not like a foundational unit that's there to build the church up upon, like on, on top of. The families aren't here to support the church. The church is here to support the families. That's exactly right. It's not to substitute for the family. And it's not to build this hierarchy of a priesthood, you know, I'm a bishop, I'm a stake president. That's, that's not what it's about. Those positions exist to help lift the family to return to live with Heavenly Father. A couple other quick quotes, quotes this is Boyd K. Packer. There's a difference in the way the priesthood functions in the home as compared to the way it functions in the church. In the church, there's a distinct line of authority. We serve where we're we're called by those who preside over us. In the home, it is a partnership with husband and wife equally yoked together. There is a hierarchy in the church, and that's there because we need order so that we don't have chaos. We don't have people running around baptizing and confirming and ordaining and setting apart without there being an order. So there, there's a need for a hierarchy in the church, but the church exists to build the family. And that hierarchy doesn't exist in the family. A most important difference in the function, this is Dallin H. Oaks, functioning of priesthood authority in the family and in the church results from the fact that the government of family is patriarchal, whereas the government of the church is hierarchical. The concept of partnership functions differently in the family than in the church. I think a lot of people misunderstand what the word patriarchal means in that context. I, I like what this is saying here that, but, but the patriarchal order is often interpreted as being that means the, the 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 fathers are the ones that preside and the fathers are the ones that make the decisions um, through the through their priesthood authority. 
but that's I'm gaining a whole new understanding. That's not the way it should be. That's not right. And yeah. again, Dallin Oaks here, the family proclamation gives this beautiful explanation of the relationship between a husband and a wife. While they have separate responsibilities in these sacred responsibilities, fathers and mothers are obligated to help one another as equal partners. And that's the patriarchal order. What I learned this week from uh, Doctrine and Covenants 106 through 108 is that the priesthood exists, this way of helping to raise everybody up, to be like Melchizedek, to be like the Savior, to help us be better people, to build our families, to build the kingdom of God. And the family is the most basic unit. And it goes back to the idea of the scepter that the Lord asks us to willingly submit and that he'll in turn give us the scepter and make us a king or queen or priest or priestess in order for us to build our families. He's willing to share that with us, provided we're willing to submit to his will, to give up the only thing that we can give up. The other interesting thing is that you have to remember there was a lot of pushback from this when Joseph Smith introduced it in the 1830s. And the reason being is because Joseph Smith lived in a primarily Protestant country. The United States was primarily Protestant. There wasn't a, a, a push from other religions until later, the first one being the, the Roman Catholic push that came in the, about 30 years later in the, in the 1860s. And the Protestants that were there were protesting against this hierarchy that existed in the church they were escaping from. And so when Joseph begins to introduce a hierarchy within the church of Jesus Christ, there's pushback. There's a lot of pushback. And so we're going to talk about as in, in weeks to come about what happens here. And it's part of the reason why some people leave the church. Appreciate everybody's participating. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks everyone. And thanks for um, those of us that are joining for the first time um, or listening in for the first time. Uh, it was a good discussion tonight.